0: We'll come to the time now in our service, we're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why this even matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Acts chapter 14? We're continuing in our series through Acts Pioneer Church. Acts 14, beginning at verse 8, and when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read this passage. Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8, just to catch you up, um, Paul is here on his first missionary journey that he was sent out on with Barnabas last week they were we saw they were in Pisidia Antioch and uh, it ends pretty badly for them with them being kicked out of that uh, town and now here uh, with this first few verses in 14 they're in a city called Iconium uh, there they preach the gospel but their message uh, brings about a divided reaction uh, there's a plot to kill these guys so they get out of that city and where we pick it up is in verse 8 in this next city Lystra Okay, verse 8, Luke writes this. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet who had been lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops and their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a huge number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each, uh, for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch from where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. And on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the doors of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just commit this time together in God's word to him. Living God, we come now to your word asking you to bless this time. Father, we believe this is a living word that you want to speak to us this morning. You have a message specifically to each heart that's gathered here today. No one is here by accident. You tell us in your word that when you send it out, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. It does not return to you void. And so I ask, God, would you accomplish the purpose in each one of us that you want to accomplish today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Some of you know that I have two daughters. Uh, one of the things that they love to do, love, I mean, more so when they were younger, but even now still, is they love to play the game, mommy and her baby. Mommy and her baby, maybe sometimes mommy and her babies, depending on how many baby dolls they have, but they just love this whole uh, play of uh, being moms. They, they love to change the babies and feed them. Uh, swaddle them and rock them, put them to bed. They love this whole thing, everything about it. They think it's the, mo- the most greatest thing in the world. But the moment—I mean, uh, I thought it was the right thing to do—the moment they first asked and they first got that heads up, first of all about how babies were actually made. This was not a great moment. This like uh, this was a what? Ugh! That is that's disgusting. And then, uh, what's actually involved in childbirth? <laughs> These two things together, they were, minds are blown, pain that they could not even imagine going through, experiencing, and hearing these two things, getting that kind of heads up, they were out. They were just like, no thank you, check please, you know what, I, yeah, we can keep playing these dolls, whatever, but I am never doing that. When I get older, I will either adopt or get a puppy. We are never going through this childbirth thing. It all sounds horrible. Now, okay, sure, we, we might smile at that and... Rightly so, but tell you what, without even knowing it, what I would submit to you this morning is that attitude is also exactly how many of us also view our relationship with Jesus. We don't really know what it's about. We don't really view it rightly. We kind of have this surfacey idea, okay, okay Jesus, my relationship with him, I he forgives my sins. And, and he uh, blesses me in this life. And then one day when I die, I get, you know, a stay at an eternal, uh, all-inclusive with Jesus. It's going to be great. And, and so if that's what we think, we are, are well, we are horrified. We are uh, confused. We are also ready to check out ourselves when we get the kind of heads up that Paul gives us here in verse 22. Look there when he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Sorry, what? Excuse me? How? That doesn't sound right. Now, no, Paul's not saying that uh, we would seek out those hardships. Can I please go through hardships, God? Or, nor is he trying to tell us uh, that somehow we, we uh, are required to go through these hardships in order to earn a more uh, secure place in God's kingdom. That's not what he's saying. Uh, if you were with us last week, Acts 13, you see very clearly, Paul's not saying we earn our salvation in any way, but in giving the church this message of encouragement, I'll put that in quotation marks, encouragement, Paul is lovingly warning all those who God calls to be his witnesses, then and now, that the Christian life is a whole lot more than coloring sheets and fishy crackers. It's Much Much more, the reality of it is much broader and deeper. And that true spiritual growth, inclusion in this amazing family of God, which, yes, includes blessing, includes forgiveness, is also going to include suffering, persecution at times, hardship to one degree or another. It just will. And if we ignore those warnings, if we, if we just try to carry on blissfully ignorant, la, 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 no, I can't hear that, assuming that maybe even all this stuff we've been looking at in the book of Acts imprisonments, beatings, uh, stonings we just think, well, that's just circumstantial, that's anomalous. If we believe that, we're going to be devastated in our witness and, and really distanced in our relationship with Jesus when those hardships come. Like my daughters, when we see the reality, we're going to say things like, oh, well, that's what Christianity is, and I'm out. Not realizing that actually, ultimately, those trials, those hardships are intended for us to be strengthened as we go through them. They're intended to draw us closer in our relationship with God as we learn to cling to Him in the midst of those things. Now, maybe you'd want to say Paul's overstating his case, or maybe that he's just pessimistic, depressive, Eeyore kind of personality that needs a less stressful hobby to do to somehow lighten it, lighten up a bit. But if you look at Paul's entire life, actually, his whole Christian life, not least of which what we see in our passage today, you see that much more than just speaking a bunch of words, some philosophy on a page, Paul's whole life post-conversion is just this massive testimony, this massive heads up of this reality that suffering, persecution, hardship will be a part of, not everything, but a part of our experience all the while assuring us that that's not in any way God's abandoning of us. But Paul, we read through this book of Acts, he had it hard. He went through some hard stuff, really hard. One theologian uh, commenting on the life and ministry of Paul said it this way. He said, I once saw the track of a bleeding hair across the snow. That was Paul's track across Europe. Now over and over again, what you see Paul declaring And demonstrating is that faithfulness to God's calling on our lives to be His witnesses is not a free pass from suffering. It doesn't allow us to to check out of the reality of we live in a world that's still broken with sin and that is actually opposed to God in many ways. I mean, Jesus Himself said almost this exact same thing. John 15, 20. Remember He said, No servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Peter. Said in one of his own letters, uh, uh, where is it? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But can we just be honest with each other this morning? It's church. Can we be honest with each other and just admit, however long you've been a Christian, when striving, when hardships, when trials come, whether you're in that right now, you've been through it, or you will come through it, can we just admit and be honest that they're still surprising and strange to us every time? Every single time, it's like, whoa, 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 why is this happening? And you need to go through the whole experience again. So rather than being a message of discouragement, it's clear that Paul intends this to be a hopeful message. It's meant to prepare us well for those hardships that are inevitably going to come. That's the reason he gives this message to the churches that he visits, that we read about in our passage, and I believe it's a message we still need in our churches today. So, as we look at our passage today, I just want to talk with you for a few minutes about what I believe it tells us here about preparing for suffering in the Christian life. We're going to talk about it in two ways. I want to show you this. We should expect suffering to be a part of the Christian life. Not everything, but a part of the Christian life. First of all, because the world wants a show, but not a Savior. And secondly, because serving the needs of others is always costly to our own. It's those Two things, we should expect suffering to be a part of our Christian life because the world wants a show but not a Savior, and serving the needs of others is always costly to our own. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts 14, starting at verse 8 there. Follow along with me as we look at this next event in the life of this pioneer church. So let's talk first about this. We should expect suffering to be a part of the Christian life because the world wants a show but not a savior. The world wants a show, but not a savior. Now, when you look at this first section here, uh, verses 8 through 15, I don't know if you noticed, but there's quite a bit of similarity, quite a bit of uh, uh, parallels between Paul's experience, what happens here, and the apostle Peter. Remember when he first uh, came into the temple? Same thing. He he heals a man who's been lame since birth. Everyone's all trying to worship him, and he's having to divert worship. No, it's not my power that did this. It's God that did this. Uh, Uh-uh telling uh, the man to look at me, all these things, incredible similarities, actually, between the two stories. I think what's happening there is we're meant to see a confirmation of Paul's apostleship, just like when uh, we talked about the Jewish and Gentile Pentecosts, how similar they were. I think in the same way, we're trying to get a, a confirmation that just like Peter, just like John, all the other apostles, Paul truly is an apostle along with these other men. But for all those similarities that we see, this whole first scene in our passage can be pretty confusing to figure out what in the world is going on. What, what's happening with uh, these guys trying to worship uh, Paul and Barnabas, offering sacrifices to them? Why, why would they do that? I think a helpful way that to, to begin to explain that to us is to consider a story you may be familiar with called Beauty and the Beast. Do you know this? Maybe you've read the book, maybe you've seen the films. Uh, if you know that story, the prince at the beginning, his whole life kind of gets changed and blown up when this old woman comes to the door one stormy night and, and asks for shelter from the storm, offering him a, a rose in exchange for shelter. And the prince, at this point in the story, is a pretty much a big jerk face. And he's like, no, get out of here. You're, you're terrible. You're ugly. Get out of here. I don't want to be a part of this. And she asks again, reminding him of appearances are not always what they seem. And when he refuses her again, all of a sudden, appearance changes. She This shell melts away. And oh, She's this beautiful enchantress, and he goes into full-on backpedaling mode. He's like, no, 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 what I meant was, and she's I'm having it. She's like, no, sorry, curses him, the whole castle, for, forever, basically, unless he's able to love and truly be loved by someone else. Now, if you haven't seen the film, spoiler alert, okay, Bookworm Bell comes, uh, uh, fall in love, everything's happy, happily ever after. Q, the uh, you know, superstar, singing a cover of one of the songs from the film, That's the Disney formula. Great story. But, let me ask you this. The next time, let's say a year later, somebody shows up at the door of that castle asking for help, asking for some sort of uh, uh, blessing, some kind. How do you think the prince is going to respond now? Now that he's had this whole terrible experience, how do you think he'll respond now when somebody knocks on the door? Different, right? I tell you all that because that's, almost exactly what happened in this ancient city of Lystra. Apparently, about 50 years previous, the Latin poet Ovid had penned this legend about the Roman god Jupiter, who was Zeus for the Greeks, and his son Mercury, Hermes, who had shown up in the hill region of Phrygia, which is basically the backyard of Lystra. They'd shown up, but they were disguised as humans. They didn't look like gods, they just looked like regular people. And in this epic kind of secret shopper event. These gods went around asking for help from people, and they were refused by everybody except one elderly couple in this broken-down old shack. They still hosted these two gods in disguise, even out of their poverty. And because of that, their house was transformed in this beautiful palace, and everyone else's home was destroyed by a giant flood. This is the story that they knew and believed. So think of this. Knowing that, believing that story... Just like the prince uh, opposed his curse, how do you think the people of Lystra are going to respond now? Well, they're going to be hypersensitive. Anybody comes who who does anything that looks even a little bit godlike, they're going to be like, oh, we don't want to suffer the same fate as our predecessors. We better uh, uh, host them. We better worship them, show reverence. We don't want to make the same mistake as these guys. So that's what's really going on here. That's why this huge reaction to these apostles. But if you look at verse 11 through 13... After healing this man who's been, been lame since birth, there's this great celebration going on, but Paul and Barnabas don't yet know what's happening because it's happening in another language. Everyone's excited and celebrating, they're like, yay, look at what God did, but they don't realize actually they're the ones being worshipped. This is a scene like right out of Star Trek, right, where they arrive at another planet, and they're, everyone's celebrating, and they're like, yes, welcome here, but they don't realize we can read the subtitles, and we know they're saying, hey, we've been so hungry, finally food has arrived. It's like that. They don't know what's happening, but when they realize what's happened, look at verse 14, 15 now. Just like uh, when Peter was at Cornelius' house and he was bowing down to him, they understand what's happening. They're like, no, no, stop. this is not what we wanted. Don't, you shouldn't be worshiping us. We're just, we are human like you. We haven't done this with our own power. Now, clearly this is a unique situation. This is something that would be for any of us. Unique situation for Paul and Barnabas, but it's unique actually in more ways than one what we're reading here. Because in the second half of verse 15 and through 17, this is actually the first recorded presentation of the gospel to a Gentile audience that doesn't have any understanding of the scriptures. They are completely a a pagan group that they're they're not uh, like the Gentiles that they were speaking to before in these other cities who would come to the synagogues, these God-fearers. You notice uh, nowhere through this uh, passage uh, 8 through 20 does Luke talk about a synagogue in this city. He doesn't talk about any of them being these God-fearers, these Gentile converts to Judaism. They've got no basis to understand who this God even is. This is why uh, Paul's presentation of the gospel, along with preaching the good news, which we said each time his good news always includes a substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, his resurrection, his forgiveness through Jesus, but... He also includes here a whole extensive section on, really, a natural theology. He's presenting them with a natural theology, revealing God's witness of His power, His kindness, not through the witness of His Word, because they wouldn't have known that, but through the witness of His creation. You see how he's saying it? God's the one who made everything around you. He's the one who's blessing you and giving you all these things. It's a very unique presentation of the gospel to someone who doesn't have the context of the Bible to understand it. It's almost exactly how Paul uh, presents the gospel in the book of Romans. Beginning in verse Romans, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 in Romans, listen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So they are without excuse. That means there's something in God's creative order, which is enough of a revelation of Himself that leaves us without excuse. That we should know there is a God, that He created this, and we need the testimony of God's Word and of the Gospel to fill that out so we can know it in a saving way. But it's included in part of how God's witness is poured out. What's striking here, though, is that even with Paul's denial, we're not gods. You shouldn't be worshiping us. And this very clear and cogent gospel presentation, we still see, look at verse 18, people of Lystra, they're not buying it. They're still intent. No, no, we, we, we want a sacrifice to you. you. I think maybe you are gods, and you're just, you're just playing hard to get. I don't know what. But then finally, as they're trying to explain that, it says these People from uh, Antioch and and Iconium show up, these towns that they'd had to flee. They show up and turn the crowd against them. When they see that the show is over, Paul and Barnabas are not here to set up a miracle healing shack ministry, but they're angry. And they stone Paul and drag him out of the city. They think they stone him to death. And they drag him out of the city and leave him there. Now, what's going on there? What? How could people who were just one minute ready to sacrifice to this guy now stone him, throw him out of the city? Now one way we could take this, there's a a whole interesting thing to think about uh, people's reactions when you confront their idols. There's a whole section I'd love to talk about there, but that's not where we're going this morning. What we're seeing here, first of all, I think first of all is disappointment. People of Lystra are disappointed, maybe embarrassed, because they've been worshipping these guys who actually aren't gods, I mean, if you know the history, for instance, of Captain Cook, his third uh, voyage to the Hawaiian Islands, where he's is killed as well. When they find out, oh, wait a minute, you're not a God? We've been worshiping you? They kill him. But same thing here. They, they find out you're not actually a God, and they kill him. They're, they're angry and frustrated. And I think that's also what we're seeing hostility and anger towards Paul because they've come for a miracle show. This guy's done this amazing miracle, and they, they want to see more. They're like, yeah, keep doing that. We want to see this. And, and, and when this, they realize, okay, no, that's not what I'm here for. I want to just talk with you. I want to give you a message. Show you your, why your gods are worthless and how we've got a Savior. They don't, they don't want to hear that at all. I mean, just imagine in a modern day example, you save up whatever it is, three months salary in order to get tickets for a Canucks game. And you go down to watch that game and they played five minutes of hockey and then it stopped. And out came the mayor, Gregor Robertson, and talks for an hour about the need for transit reforms in our city. Now that's important, okay, but you're gonna be like, no, 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 that, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to see a show. I don't want to hear some message right now. And and they probably tear the place apart. It would be chaos. Same thing here. And this is where the starter comes full circle because the gospel, the gospel always needs to include both a demonstration of the message. And a declaration. It needs both. It's what you see all through the book of Acts. It's what we have in our purpose statement as a church. Demonstration and declaration of the the gospel. They're like two wings of a plane. You need both in order to fly, right? But where... Uh, whether it's these miracles that we've looked at, uh, whenever we've talked about the demonstration of the gospel, while well, we've always said, yes, uh, the miracles confirm their message, uh, the, the, the demonstration of the gospel, it, it shows validity to our witness, those things are never the point. Those are not to be the focus. The miracles, the demonstrations, those are never the point. Why? Because the demonstration of the gospel is not what saves people. It's the message of reconciliation through Jesus that does that that's also the first reason that we should expect suffering and hardship in the Christian life because here's the reality everybody loves the demonstration part of the gospel they love that part demonstration of gospel power that can always draw a crowd whether that's uh, when the apostles were speaking in tongues here uh, raising up a guy who'd been lame since birth Serving the needs of your community in these sacrificial ways. uh, Forgiving groups that have been oppressing you. All those things, that leads in the news, doesn't it? We see that everywhere. People love demonstrations of gospel power. But, lest you think that, okay, well, I guess maybe they did something wrong by declaring a message. Remember, listen, even Jesus himself was sought out only as kind of a, a miracle show magician and not the savior of the world that he was. Many people sought him just for that. Remember uh, John six after he had fed the five thousand people, and then this huge crowd of thousands of people is following him. Jesus says right to them, he's actually he says, you know what? Many of you are actually aren't even here because you want to see me. You're not here because you know you need a savior. You're here because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're here for a show, and that's not what I came to give you. And that is why you should expect that suffering will be a part of your Christian life because as long as you're serving, loving, uh, giving, forgiving people out of your desire to demonstrate the gospel, people will come out for that show. They will come out for that demonstration all day long. But the minute you want to, I want to give you that same heads up that Paul gives you. the minute you bring declaration of that same gospel message into the picture, for some, actually for many, that's going to immediately change the posture towards you. they are going to be like, well, hang on, what? And you're going to be encouraged, either quietly or very forcefully, like Paul was here in our passage, you're going to be encouraged to keep the declaration to yourself. Yes, please keep serving in these ways. We we love the demonstration part, but just keep that declaration to yourself. And can I tell you, you've got to hear me, we can never listen to that. We, We can't listen to that request. Why? Because first of all, as we just said, the demonstration of the message doesn't save anybody. Only the message does that. The demonstration doesn't actually help anyone in the end, in an eternal way, and it means that people need to hear it. Our demonstrations of the gospel are meant to only provide validity and a platform so that we can declare the message. People need to actually hear it in order for their lives to be changed by it. That's exactly what Paul says, Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, yes, But how can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? It's a message that needs to be heard. It can't just be demonstrated. Secondly, we also can't listen to that request to not declare the message because the demonstration of the gospel alone, if that's all we do, as we just saw in our passage here, verses 8 through 13, what that does is it makes people, disciples and worshipers, of us, and not Jesus. Look at these amazing community servants. Look at these guys who are serving uh, these uh, oppressed people. Aren't they amazing? Makes people worshipers of us, and not Jesus. And as we've said all through this book of Acts, the Spirit, when He comes, He empowers us to be witnesses not of ourselves, but of Jesus. We're His witnesses, not our own. So we can't leave out declaration can't leave out that part, even if it does, even if that is the thing that will bring about hardship for us. It's the only message we have. So that's the first reason we should expect suffering to be a part of the Christian life, because the world wants a show, but they don't want a Savior. And when you try to offer them both, it will undoubtedly bring about persecution, hardship from a world that would rather you give them the first one and keep the second one to yourself second reason we should expect suffering to be a part of the Christian life is because serving the needs of others is always costly to our own. When you're giving to, to offer help to other people, to, to give them uh, some, some help in a need they have, you always have to give out of your own stores, so it's always costly to you in order to serve the needs of others. Now that's perhaps a, a, already a self-evident point to you, we know from our experience or example that, as the saying goes, we can't have our cake and eat it too. To give you an example, I met myself as a believer in Jesus. When I try to demonstrate the truth of the gospel that I'm declaring, let's say I take an afternoon, three hours, and go to help somebody move. Or maybe, you know, each Sunday I'm giving out of the finances that God has blessed me with. I want to give to his mission in order to see the mission of the gospel increase and, and go forward. But I don't somehow supernaturally get that time and money back later, right? It doesn't come back to me somehow. I don't, God doesn't send leprechauns in the night who deliver little boxes, and when I open it up in the morning beside my bed, hey, honey, look, it's the three hours I gave last week. We, we don't, it doesn't happen. We know that. And so we know on paper that to serve the needs of others, that's always going to be costly to our own. It means giving out of our own stores of time, talent, and treasure. But this is where what we looked at last week about the proclivity of the human heart to always want to go back towards works righteousness, it's going to come up again. Because even if we don't see our giving uh, uh, and our hardships that we endure in order to serve the needs of others, even if we don't see that as earning our salvation, we can absolutely start to see our service and our costly giving as somehow giving us a means of bargaining with God. Gives us a means to bargain with him. So no, maybe I don't expect a box delivered by leprechauns to reimburse me with what I give, but I could absolutely start, and maybe you can resonate with this in your own heart, we can absolutely start to see our giving, our costly giving in whatever way it is, as somehow now obligating God to, you know, help us out a little more, chip chip in a little bit more when I come to you with a request for something. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? all of us myself included we need to guard ourselves against that way of thinking because i'm telling you it is devastating to our relationship with god as well as our spiritual growth because if you believe giving of your time your talent your your treasure is somehow earns you extra credits with god it earns you uh, bargaining chips with him you're going to be lost whenever suffering still comes to your life like it does for all of us and god won't cash in your credits and maybe you won't ever pray it out loud, but you're going to resentfully be believing in your heart, God, what are you doing? I read my Bible every day this month. Didn't miss a Sunday. God, I've been, I've been offering all this stuff up to you. I've been offering you all my, my, my hurts, my anxiety, my fear, my lust, my greed, my hatred. I've been giving those things to you. How could you still let this happen? You ever prayed like that? Why haven't you fixed this now? Healed that person, provided for that need. And once again, this is where Paul's counterintuitive but helpful encouragement in verse 22 comes back to us again, lovingly reminding us we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's a part of the experience. I want to show you how Paul guards himself against that kind of bargaining with God through his service in a minute. But I want to just quickly look at what hardships Paul goes through, the costs that he gives, even in this passage alone, in his service of God. Look at verse 26. 14 and verse 26. What does it say there? From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace. Now, simple question. I just said it. Where was Paul headed to? Now that they've finished preaching in Derby, where is he going? Somebody say Thank you. Antioch. He's going to Antioch. Great. Okay, look at this map. Have we got it up here? Okay, here we go. Right up here in the top center, there's Derby. That's where they are. And right over here, Antioch, that's their starting point. Okay? Great. So, simplest route, Derby. We go through here, over through Tarsus, to Antioch. Great. Is that the way Paul goes? No. What did it say earlier? He leaves there, but goes back to all those cities... Takes this huge roundabout before he goes back to Antioch. So he, he's giving everything, he's sacrificing hugely in order to, to do this, giving all of I mean he's giving you time and money. That journey is way longer and then way more expensive. And he's also sacrificing his safety. These are the places that ran him out of town and tried to kill him. He's going back there all to serve the needs of others. Strengthen and encourage these infant churches that he just planted? Why would he do that? If anyone had reason to boast that could say somehow, God, look at all I've given for you. Look at all I've suffered for you in order to serve you. I think you you owe me a little bit now. If anyone had reason to do that, it was Paul. I mean, isn't that exactly what he was saying in another place in his letter to the Philippians talking about all of his efforts and labors for God as a Pharisee? And yet still, even then, look at how he views those things now, post his interactions with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, listen to what he says. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain, gain Christ." and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, how could Paul do that? How could he, all that stuff that he went through, how could he say that and really mean it? And for us today, how, I think what we'd all love to know is how can we say that and really mean it? When we endure these hardships as we experience uh, what it means to be a follower of jesus i think the answer we see is in verse 27 look with me there after arriving back in antioch having completed the work for which uh, he and barnabas were commissioned he gives this report to the church but look at the language that paul uses in verse 27 on arriving here they gathered the church together and reported all that god had done through them and how he had opened the doors of faith to the gentiles did you catch that Did you see what the guard against this kind of bargaining thinking is when we suffer hardships, when we give in costly ways to serve God? What does he say? Is he boasting anywhere about, man, you should have seen how I was able to escape those towns and get out of there. Look at all the people I led to faith in Jesus, all these churches I've planted among the Gentiles. Is he doing that? No. His entire report to the church is, look what God did through us. Look what he accomplished, the doors that he opened for us. See, that's how Paul could talk about being able to rejoice in the suffering, the loss of all things, and mean it, because he understood suffering and hardship is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And therefore, although he did suffer hardships, he never saw those costs that he paid as things that God needed to reimburse him for, needed to win credits for. His obedience to his call to be a witness for Jesus, whatever it cost him, was solely about his understanding I am the chief of sinners who's been saved by grace alone. And I I just want to give everything that I have, everything that I have at my disposal, I want to give it all in service of the one who saved me. So he points all credit back to God. He did it. These aren't my accomplishments that I earned credit. He gets the glory because he did it through me. That's how we avoid this Bargaining. if we see that everything we accomplish for the sake of the gospel, every cost we pay, it's actually He's the one that accomplished it through us. When you consider that, when you consider that attitude, does it start to change at least a little bit for you the way you view the costs that you pay today, whatever costs you pay in service of God? Do you start to see your offering of your time, your talent, your treasure, as an understood part of your service to a God who gave everything to save you? Understanding, just like Paul, that God has done it all. It's He's the one who gets the glory. are you still viewing the hardships that you endure to your calendar, the hardships you endure to the use of your talents, the hardship you endure to your bank account as an investment, but not an investment in the kingdom of God, but an investment in yourself, that you think that you can... Cash in at some point when you need to call on a favor from God. Those are two very different ways of living. The first one is going to bring life. It's going to bring joy. It's going to deepen your faith and grow your relationship stronger with Jesus. When you see like Paul, you can just open your hands and pour out whatever God calls you to surrender, knowing that the prize that you're working towards is Him. The prize that we are striving towards is God. You get Him Second way, that other way of operating, I promise, is only going to cause frustration, confusion, and a steady distancing in your relationship with God because you don't put God in your debt. You're not earning credits. And if the ultimate prize of your life is not more and more of Him, you're going to find that the things that you do attain, they're fleeting, they're fading, they will never satisfy you in a way that He can Two things I want to just consider quickly as we close this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. And you're hearing all this and you're just thinking, yes, thank you very much, actually. I just want to thank you for your honesty, for just showing me that Christians truly are crazy and that Christianity offers no support at all, no help whatsoever in avoiding suffering. Thank you. I knew I didn't want to be a Christian, but this is helpful. Thank you. If that's If that's you, if that's what you're thinking this morning, I I would just want to ask you to consider this. How have you found not believing in Jesus to be working out when it comes to avoiding suffering? Is Is it really any different? You not believing in Jesus, has that allowed you to avoid suffering and hardships in your life? No. It comes to all of us, because here's the reality. No, believing in Jesus does not free a Christian from the hardships and suffering in life that we all face, but it absolutely offers us meaning, a sense of purpose. It gives it to our suffering in a way that not believing never could. Because for the Christian, hardships, suffering that we go through, they're achieving for us a beautiful purpose of deepening and strengthening our faith, growing and conforming us through those things to look more and more like Jesus. That's the point of them, but for a non-believer, those same hardships, that same suffering you go for, that you go through, they're not accomplishing anything. All they're doing is just withdrawing from your life account and putting nothing back in there. That's what's so radically different about faith in Jesus. It's not about avoiding suffering, but it's about changing our entire experience of that suffering to a way that it's actually accomplishing something now.